Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Have you ever driven around in a city and wondered if there are more churches than gas stations? Have you ever asked Google a religious question or wanted to know uh, the answer to some doctrinal issue, only to be bombarded with a dizzying array of perspectives? Uh, This raises the issue, who really are God's agents? Who really are the people who work for God? Who are the chosen servants to whom God has entrusted his things? Uh, We're going to talk today about a parable that addresses these issues in our study of the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, Today, we will be in the wicked tenant parable found in Matthew 21, 33 to 46. Now, this parable is full of surprises, both in its complexities and interpretation, its theological implications, and also its practical ramifications for us today. Uh, The basic issue of having a plurality of competitors all claiming to be the ones working for God was also around in the first century, with different religious sects having their own spin, each attacking the other, and all claiming to be the faithful servants whom God has put in charge of his things. The chief priests and the Pharisees were certainly one such group, and when Jesus dramatically predicted the destruction of the temple and called out the temple and its workers for their corruption, they understandably had their feathers ruffled. Their question to Jesus after this event is uh, entirely predictable. By what authority are you doing these things? It would be like if someone came into a church building on a Sunday morning uh, during the preaching and approached the front and threw over the pulpit. Someone, probably the people in charge, are going to need to respond to an action like that. I can just Imagine the Pharisees and the chief priests, after hearing about Jesus' actions of so-called cleansing the temple, coming to Jesus and saying in so many words, What do you think you're doing here? We're in charge. Who made you the boss? Now, it's this overall placement of the wicked tenant parable in its literary context, that is, in connection with the so-called temple cleansing event, Uh, that suggests to us that this story is about the subject of agency and the question of who's in charge of the things of God. Now, Mark's version makes this connection particularly clear as the wicked tenant parable follows on the heels of the conversation about the authority of John the Baptist. Matthew has added to the parable uh, with his uh, parable of the two sons and the parable of the wedding banquet to make this a trio of parables. But still, there isn't anything here to suggest that Matthew intends us to take the wicked tenant parable in a different direction than what Mark does. In fact, there are several other features of the parable that reinforce the theme of agency. So, besides the placement of the parable in its literary context, we can also focus on the logic of the parable itself. Now, as I read the text, pay careful attention to how the theme of agency functions. Uh, Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. 
When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. And finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Did you catch how the theme of agency came up? The Pharisees and the chief priests easily recognize that they're the ones who are supposed to be the tenant farmers. According to the logic of the parable, they are, or were, in charge of the vineyard, commissioned by the owner himself. But their problem is that they do not appropriately recognize their position as mere agents, as mere stewards. They don't respect the fact that this really is someone else's vineyard to whom they're accountable. They actually think that they can own it and overestimate their own importance. Thus, Jesus subtly condemns uh, the religious leaders for exaggerating their own importance. As if It's as if he's saying, uh, don't forget uh, this place, the temple, is my father's house, as he said earlier. It's not your house. It's my father's house, and I am the son whom he has sent and to whom you must give an answer. So the issue of agency is, is also highlighted not only in the larger literary context and the logic of the parable, but also in the allusion to Isaiah 5. The parable begins with what seems like, what looks like filler, uh, describing the planting of the vineyard, the fence, the wine press, and the watchtower. And these aren't necessary for the actual storyline of the parable. Instead, they signal to the reader who's knowledgeable of the Old Testament um, or at least knowledgeable of the incredibly important prophecy of Isaiah, that Jesus is picking up on Isaiah 5 and twisting it for his own purposes. Uh, Richard Hayes puts it uh, playfully, it's like he's riffing on Isaiah's love song. Now, it's worth reading this seven-verse song to see how Jesus has made significant changes to it. So, Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? 
And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, and righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Notice that here God asks for a decision. Judge between me and my vineyard. There are no hired servants to blame in Isaiah's version of the song. He only lists two possible culprits. Either the planter didn't do a good enough job, or the vineyard is bad. And because there's nothing else that the planter could have done, the vineyard itself is to blame. But Jesus has changed this by adding in the extra characters. In effect saying, it's not the vineyard so much that's to blame, it's those who are taking care of it. Furthermore, unlike Isaiah 5, the punishment that comes does not fall on the vineyard here, but on those who are in charge of it. It is the leaders who are being replaced, not necessarily the people of God as such. Now, if we had the time, we could talk about why Jesus even decided to use Isaiah 5 and explore how the issue of agency isn't quite as absent as it seems at first, as well as look at how Isaiah 5 is used elsewhere. But for now, suffice it to say that the echo of Isaiah 5 and the changes Jesus made highlights the issue of agency, demonstrating that the wicked tenant parable is about the question, who really does work for God? Now, one of the fascinating features of this parable is the tragic end that comes to the son. Given that the readers are expected to know about the significance of Jesus, there must be more to the story than this. The story just has the son being murdered. And here, Matthew's readers are surely to think of the crucifixion. But then, it just ends. There is no more mention about the son being reintroduced or resurrected or anything like that. The logic of the parable, surprisingly, goes like this. The owner takes away the vineyard from the wicked farmers, destroys them, and then puts the vineyard into the hands of others. The kingdom is taken away from them. We can think of statements like Samuel to Saul. The kingdom of God is taken away from you and given to another, meaning that Saul will no longer be uh, God's agent as king, but David will. That is to say, there is a change of hands in leadership. But lest anyone gets the idea that the son figure is of absolutely no importance at all for the future prosperity of the vineyard, Jesus shifts images a little bit and quotes from Psalm 118. Uh, From the Aramaic translation of Isaiah 5, called the Targum, it really does seem like Jewish people would have understood all of this talk about the watchtower uh, as a reference to the temple. Furthermore, the building in view in Psalm 118 seems to be the temple. It is, after all, where sacrifices are made. The scene is something like this. There are these builders who apparently are constructing and building the temple. The image of a builder, by the way, can be demonstrated to be religious leaders. But uh, these builders are gathering stones to construct this building. Uh, They then consider one particular stone and decide to reject it because they deem it unsuitable uh, for what they're doing. However, God is determined to use this stone. He is determined that it will be incorporated into the building project. This implies that the original builders who reject the stone will be set aside and God will get himself some new builders who will incorporate the stone into the building. 
Now it's not clear from the Greek if this new stone functions as a foundation stone, implying the new builders restart the whole project. If so, this would emphasize the discontinuity of what the church does, uh, that they're starting a whole new project. Or it may be that this stone should be seen as a capstone, the top stone, implying that the new builders finish their earlier work, thus emphasizing the continuity of the church with the past people of God. Now, I'm convinced it's the former, but in any case, the main point is that Jesus is claiming that the old religious establishment, who claims to work for God, will be replaced by a new set of builders, a new set of farmers, particularly those who recognize the value of the sun or who recognize the true value of the once-rejected stone. Jesus will have much more to say about the nature of those for whom God uses uh, for his ministry in the world. But two important lessons emerge here. First, those who are God's agents must acknowledge their place as mere agents. They are just stewards. They do not own the vineyard. They are accountable to God and work for him. God will replace those who have an inflated ego and actually think that they own the project. This, a corollary to this is that uh, those who work for God must acknowledge the validity of others who work for God in their own uh, different capacities as God has hired out other people. The people who work for God, even today, must not have an inflated ego and think that they own everything and simply acknowledge their place their unique, uh, perhaps even small place in the grander scale of what God is doing. Uh, Secondly, and most importantly, this parable teaches that those who work for God must be those who receive the message of the Son and who build, so to speak, upon him. Any work that is not Christocentric or, or centered on the person of Jesus Christ cannot really be of God. Those who reject this stone will themselves be rejected and destroyed. And any legitimate spokesperson for God must build on the cornerstone, which is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partners.